Hello and welcome to Off Piece Presents Tull Talks, uh, a special episode in lieu of a proper one because we weren't around. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a special episode of Off Piece. We couldn't all get together to record, so instead of a normal episode, I've put together a lecture. Normal broadcasting will resume next week. I thought in lieu of our normal hilarious comedy show, I'd bring a slightly different change of pace and talk about cinematic universes with a look to see what makes them work and what doesn't. Naturally, this will involve a deep discussion about Marvel, DC, as well as other shared universes that have cropped up over the past decade. And I want to examine the precedents that are being set on a yearly basis to conclude why some work and others don't. So without any more ado, we'll start the beginning of it all. Marvel being nearly bankrupt. So in the late 90s, Marvel comics were almost bankrupt. Amidst other factors, comics weren't particularly selling and the company was really struggling. They still had massive popularity though, in terms of the characters. They were all still ubiquitous pop culture mainstays, specifically Spider-Man. And the value of that character was great. This led to Marvel selling the movie rights for Spider-Man to Sony for several dollars. And they also sold off the X-Men and the Fantastic Four, uh, who went to Fox, as well as other characters such as Daredevil. This bought them some liquidity, and following commercially successful Spider-Man and X-Men movies, Marvel were able to bounce back. The movies then started to influence the comic books. You started to see um, elements that had been used in the films uh, brought forward to, uh, to the comics, and that, that worked in tandem. You, know, you, had, um, you had characters that were... Uh, something like Spider-Man having web shooters in his origins. Now it comes out of his body, like it did in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. So how does this relate to the MCU as we know it now? Well, throughout this period of successful superhero Marvel, uh, movies, uh, Marvel were looking to do the same thing themselves. And uh, all their big-name characters had now been sold to companies who were, who were doing really well with them. So Marvel had to dig deep, and they pulled out some lesser-known properties to transform into cinematic movies. Which is what, what they went and did. So Iron Man, Captain America and Thor broadly considered B-tier Marvel heroes, which meant that adapting them to a film would not only be considered a challenge in terms of making them popular, but also in communicating a definitive origin. People know Batman and Spider-Man and Superman's origin stories religiously, ubiquitous with superheroes almost. But someone like Iron Man is not so much. So 2008 would be the beginning of the MCU. And for context, this is when The Dark Knight came out, which is considered one of the best Batman movies ever made and also one of the best superhero movies ever made. Um, so this is a, this is a big point for, for Marvel. This is them rolling the dice on a character that no one really knows about. Um, he's kind of goofy. And they also took a big risk on who they cast in the lead role, which is Robert Downey Jr., obviously, uh, who, is, who is known as Iron Man. That's, that's who he is. You can't really watch him in anything now and not go, that's Tony Stark. But prior to this, he, he, he was basically down on his luck. He was out. He, you know, he was, he was in and out of rehab. He'd been in a few movies, but otherwise, you know, this this was to be his uh, his swan song, his comeback. Um, and that's what happened. The the film exploded. It was incredibly popular. Um, it was it was done with a tremendous amount of heart, the right level of of comedy, um, really great writing. Uh, it looked beautiful. It still looks great now because of the blend of uh, great VFX and uh, and practical effects. Um, and it launched the most successful franchise of movies ever made. 
Now, when we're looking at, at cinematic universes, um, I've sort of concluded a few reasons why some work and some don't, why some films in the cinematic universe that might broadly be good um, are still quite bad. Um, and I'm, I'm going to go through a few of them. So first, I'd like to talk about why Marvel is, is great at this by examining what a cinematic universe is, because it's still a very new concept. You know, it's, it's 10 years now, but every year it, it, something evolves and adapts. There, isn't, there is no right way to do it. There is just a way that seems to have worked and a lot of ways that, that don't work. Um, so with, with previous, um, the, the way previous film franchises would work, something like, let's look at the original Spider-Man trilogy. That is a self-contained trilogy of films. Um, they don't necessarily influence one another from a from a setup point of view, um, but a sequel will uh, pick up on on certain threads and and expand on them further. That's that's pretty much how sequels work generally. Um, look at Pirates of the Caribbean. The first one, very much a standalone film, not intended to to set anything up. It d it does end open, but when we get to the second one, it ends on a cliffhanger, and the third one resolves that. Um, which is, is sort of what we get with that Spider-Man trilogy. Not, not quite as explicit, but we've got the first one, which is its own film. You know, if, if it's a... Basically, if that's a commercial failure, then they can just write it off. They don't... You know, people aren't contracted to, to appear in 20 films. But it was, it was really popular. And the second one, even more so. The third one, yeah. But the second one ends not on a cliffhanger, but, but it does have threads left open, but not so much so that it takes away from that film. And that is a problem with some of the bad cinematic universe films. So I'll explain what I mean. The best films in the MCU are the ones that make light references to the world at large, um, without that taking away from a contained singular story. Think about some of the best films in the MCU. You've got Iron Man, uh, the first Iron Man, which basically might as well not be in it, apart from a post credit scene. Um, the uh, uh, Captain America Winter Soldier is fantastic. It's got light references to the MCU. It's got characters that should be in it, so you know they're not dragging random characters in for no reason. Um, I think Thor Ragnarok, pretty much its own self-contained film. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy. They are, they're, they're, they're in this world, but they're not forcing references down your throat every, every five seconds, and they're not desperately trying to set up the next film. Look at Iron Man 2, which, is, which was wildly anticipated, and I, I still maintain it's, it's a good film, but the worst parts of that film are it trying to shoehorn in references to a wider universe and build towards the Avengers, which I get that you have to do because you can't just randomly do the Avengers without, um, without some kind of setup, without some kind of character development um, that, that leads to it. But there is, a, there is definitely a balance point. And I don't think um, Iron Man 2 should be thought of as, as a bad film because it's, it's the first, um, first step into doing anything like this that, uh, that any uh, film company has ever done. There are no precedents for this. Um, there has not been a cinematic universe at this point. The term doesn't exist yet. That's how fresh this all is. So we, we have a good few films in the Marvel um in the Marvel history, getting towards the first Avengers film. We have two Iron Man films, we have a Captain America film, we have an Incredible Hulk film, and a Thor film. And in these films, we are introduced, in, in some way, 
to the entire cast of the Avengers. And this is really important because by the time we get to the Avengers, every character has their own arc, their own reason for being here. We're also introduced to all the driving forces in the Avengers. We're introduced to the concept of the Tesseract, which is the MacGuffin of the film. We're introduced to Loki, the villain of the film. Um, and there are, there are enough surprises in the film, there are enough characters that sort of turn up to, to bolster that cast. But ultimately, we're not really being introduced to that much new in the Avengers. We are being introduced to the concept of the team coming together. Now, contrast this with how DC has handled their cinematic universe. So just put a pause on that point, we'll come back to it. The, the DC Extended Universe, as it's unofficially called, is basically they're just trying to catch up and they're trying to rush it because they want to they get these films out there so that they can be going toe-to-toe with Marvel at the box office. But look at, look at the difference. So Man of Steel, the first uh, DCEU film, was... Um, it, it came fresh off of the massively successful Dark Knight trilogy by Christopher Nolan, to the point where Christopher Nolan is actually a producer on Man of Steel, and you can tell through all the marketing and all the all the sort of design elements that this is meant to be the Superman uh, equivalent of the Dark Knight. And in some areas that works, in some areas it doesn't. I mean, I think the character of Superman inherently doesn't lend itself to the grit that Batman does, and they really do lean into that quite heavily in, in Man of Steel. But this is, this is the, the start of a, of, a, of a universe. This is their Iron Man. So when you put it in those terms, look, look how different these films are, because Man of Steel is a self-contained film, as I say, so that, that is, ticks that box. It's not trying to build a universe. It's not, um, it's not constantly mentioning that you know, there's a guy dressed as a bat in the neighbouring city. No, it's very much meant to be a Superman in the real world and how that would work, which I, I think maybe it wasn't executed well, but I like the concept. It, it, it certainly handles that quite well. The film did get a lukewarm reaction, even from the people on this uh, podcast. I mean, I'm not even sure if... Dan Luck has seen it, but I certainly have, and I enjoyed bits of it, but there is certainly, the final third of this film is just a mess. I mean, even like from an American's perspective, it must be awful because it's just so much imagery borrowed from 9-11 and then just ranked up, you know, cranked up to a massive level. And I think the reason that this film didn't do as well as, say, something like Iron Man, is because the character of Superman is so deeply ingrained in pop culture that the scrutiny that he's going to be under is far greater than that of Iron Man. If um, John Favreau, who directed Iron Man, changed a few things about Iron Man, which he did, he changed a lot of things, um, who cares? This isn't a character that we know, love, and have already got multiple uh, iconic interpretations of. This is a fresh concept you know i'd be surprised if i wouldn't be surprised if uh, a lot of people thought that this was a, a brand new character created for film just to just to give an example jarvis the ai that tony stark has in the comic books is actually just his butler it's his it's his alfred but no one no one gives a shit about that it's an ai voiced by paul bettany it's now become that in the comics um put that against if someone did a batman film but instead of an alfred it was an ai people would probably be pretty pretty annoyed about that that's a staple of the character that he has this old man that grounds him in reality and um you know is is sort of 
brutal with him. He isn't scared to tell him the truth about the, the idiocy of what he's doing. Michael Caine does that extremely well in The Dark Knight. So Man of Steel is it, it, it plays almost like an Elseworlds comic. If you don't know what an Elseworlds comic is, it's um it's what DC call their sort of one shots. So you'll take an iconic character and you'll play around with their origin. You'll play around with certain tropes that made them. There's one called Superman Red Son, where instead of being raised by the Kents in America, Superman crash lands in Russia, um, and how that affects his character. And th th these are really interesting as comic books because you get to see a character that everyone knows, everyone is familiar with, but you put them in a different circumstance. Here's the problem with Man of Steel. If we're taking this character that's going to be going through the DCEU, we need a definitive version of him to come through because this is the character. This isn't an alternative reality version of that character. This is the character that is going to carry the franchise. Um, so... The fact that we're starting off with this dark and gritty Superman that seemingly is able to kill, wants to kill, um, that sets us down a path that's very hard to get off of unless we write our way out of it. Now, the second film in the DCEU is, is Batman versus Superman. So before we've even established that this is a shared universe, we've already got a crossover event, and this is where things go irreparably wrong for the DCEU. By the time we got to the Avengers, as I previously mentioned, we'd had films for all the main characters. And in those films, some of the other main characters had turned up. Um, uh, Scarlett Johansson was in Iron Man 2 as Black Widow, along with Nick Fury. So we now know who these characters are. In Thor, we had uh, Jeremy Renner pop up as a cameo as, um, as Hawkeye. And also Eric Selvig, who's important in the Avengers, is in that film quite a lot. So even some of the side characters are being introduced and given reasons for being there before we've even got to the, the main event. Um, you know, even Hulk had a film and, and yeah, it didn't really go down that well, but at least there's still context there. There's stuff that they can, they can pull back on. They can even show footage that makes sense. You know, it's, it's within the context of this world. There is history to these characters that we've seen. We don't need to be told because we've seen it. So by the time we get to Batman vs Superman, the issue that we've got is that this film is playing as both a sequel to Man of Steel and an introduction to this wider universe. Not just Batman, but a wider universe. Now, Batman doesn't really need an introduction. We've already had, in very recent memory, a very good and definitive um, performance of Batman. Um, so we don't, we don't need to open this film with the pearl necklace smashing and Batman's parents being murdered, because we just know. We, just, we know what happened to Batman. And I quite like Ben Affleck's portrayal of Batman. It's, it's pretty good. The, the design is on point. I mean, that's one thing the DCU gets right every time. The casting is incredible. The, these are great actors that are really well suited to the role. Where it falls apart is how they're utilised and the films that they're appearing in. So what, what would you even call Batman vs Superman? It's not a main event, you know, Justice League or Avengers level film. It's, it's sort of a non-entity. It's not even one character's franchise that another character's appearing in. Its closest contemporary is something like Captain America Civil War. But even that is, a, is at its core a Captain America film with a second act filled with Avengers characters, but it is still a Captain America film. It still carries on the story from Winter Soldier. It is a sequel to Winter Soldier. This is a mess. Um, and for your second entry, in a cinematic universe it's it's a nail in a coffin not the final one
but it is a nail. We're getting four of these. Um, so so th th this film doesn't establish the rules of this cinematic universe at all. It doesn't ground anything, and it, it doesn't explain what the limits are. It also kills Superman in his second film. We haven't seen Superman become Superman yet, so there is no reason for us to care that he's died. Um, and we know he's coming back. Like, it, the marketing around these films betrays the plot. If you know a character's coming back from the dead explicitly, then it just takes a lot of attention out of it. Um, it you know, we, if we know Superman is going to carry the Justice League franchise, it would not work without him. He's such an important character. So to kill him in his second film is just it's just lazy writing. It just looks like all the like everything Zack Snyder did on this film was to take every sort of iconic story that he thought he knew about Batman and Superman and just mash them together in a way that doesn't make a huge amount of sense and rush it. He even throws in Wonder Woman, who isn't too bad in this film. I think I think again really well cast, really well acted. But she's in the film because... And then you get these sort of rushed introductions to the Justice League members, all of whom have their, their own weird little logos on, on Lex Luthor's computer. It's, it's just so trying to do so much in one film, and it doesn't really do any of it well. And this is the, the masterclass in how not to build a world. It's not the first film to have done it. Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man 2 did the same thing. It, will, it, it tried to build a universe where we weren't ready for it. We hadn't really got used to our characters as they stood yet. We don't really know the rules of the world. One film cannot tell you everything about a universe. Two films still know. You, you need these, these characters to have come together at some point so that you can see what the relation is with each other. You know full well that if Tony Stark took a punch in the face from Thor or Captain America, he'd be out cold. When he's in the armour, he can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. That's fine. That's a rule. That's an internal, logical consistency that works within that film. We still don't know what the power level of Superman is, but through what we've seen, he can fly through a building very, very quickly and destroy it instantly. We don't know enough about Batman yet, but because we know, uh, you know, from culture, uh, uh, outline of Batman, him going up against Superman seems like a stupid thing to do. <laughs> um, now, a lot of people have said to me that the Batman-Superman um, battles, you know, across uh, comic history are interesting stories. But I, I do have to disagree because there's no, there's no conclusion to it that would be satisfactory. Either Superman wins and you put your hands in the air and go, yeah, obviously Superman won. Or Batman wins and you go, well, yeah, because they couldn't let Superman win. That would be too obvious. Batman will think his way out of it. But the, the real conflict between Batman and Superman should not be physical because that's just not a contest. It should be, um, it should be philosophical. One disagrees with the other's methods. And maybe the whole Batman versus Superman thing would be better suited as a as more of a debate while they actually, you know, are, are battling a, a greater threat. I don't know. This isn't this isn't a let's fix BBS, but that's the issue that we've got is that this film just wanted Superman and Batman punching each other. It didn't care how it got there. And even when it did get there, 
it was it just wasn't a satisfactory fight because it couldn't be it, it, it's not a thing that translates to the big screen well um so yeah your second film in the dceu has has, has just failed to, to do any of what it was trying to do the next film is well is, is suicide squad which does its best to be a self-contained self-contained film um even though it's got the character of batman in it at the beginning um, and it introduces the Joker and it introduces this sort of rogues gallery. Um, it, it's broadly inconsequential in, in every sense. Uh, it, it builds out the world a little bit, but I mean, not massively. It, it's just this weird little story. And I know I said that, uh, that the best movies in a cinematic universe are self-contained. But this film isn't bad because it's uh, it's not connected to a, a wider universe. This film's bad because it just doesn't really make a huge amount of sense. Um, but if we are to take the Batman that we see in this film, and 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 also the fact that the Joker is in this film and Harley Quinn is in this film, and, and it's established that they murdered Robin, and in doing so, that's that's potentially what's made this Batman a, a murdering Batman, a killing Batman. Now the film is breaking its own internal logic that it's told me about. So follow, follow this train of thought. So as I say, the rules of the MCU, they, they, they're bendable, but they're broadly, they're broadly locked in. You know, uh, Spider-Man can lift up a car. He can, if he really puts his mind to it, he can hold two halves of a, of a ship together just about. That gives us an indication of how strong he is and what sort of threats he can go up against. Um, he doesn't kill people. He, he doesn't really punch that much in the MCU. That's, that's a big thing. Um, uh, Captain America, we've seen that he's super strong, can run, but if you shot him in the face, he would die. Um, Thor is an absolute tank, but he can be stopped um, by, by big things, you know, by someone like Thanos, by someone like the Hulk. Um, Iron Man can normally think his way around a situation. He'll have a, a suit for the occasion, but even that, you know, it can be torn apart. Um, let's, go, let's go over to Batman. We don't know that much about him, but one of the big character points of Batman is that he doesn't kill. And the reason he doesn't kill is because it would make his job much, much easier if he just murdered people. His entire uh, duality with the Joker is undermined the second he decides to kill, because all that he does is kill the Joker. The Joker is not a physical threat. The Joker is a existential threat. The Joker is a, a philosophical foil to Batman. He is the counterpoint. He is the Batman if Batman didn't have his, his sense of justice and his rules. And this has been explored many, many times. And there are great Elseworld comics where Batman has murdered the Joker. But as I said before about Man of Steel, this is meant to be our definitive version of Batman. Now, I'm all for him being at a point where he's, you know, a bit more violent, a bit more aggressive because of, you know, some terrible things that happened. And we need Superman to come in and, and give him that hope. But it's never earned. And we have a Joker in this universe who Batman would have just killed. There would have been no two ways about it, you know. Or, you know, if to do the Zack Snyder thing, he'd have thrown a grenade at him, kicked him through a door, and then the grenade would have killed him. That wouldn't have been Batman killing him. Um, so our, our characters here are so, so deeply ingrained in pop culture that when we change these things about them, people do question it. And it's not nitpicking and it's not being unfair to DC against Marvel. If anything, it's a sort of a backhanded compliment. Mar DC's cinematic characters are far more popular than the Marvel ones were. I mean, that that's starting to that will have shifted now. People are definitely more aware of the Avengers and, and all the characters in it than they were. But 
DC had such a head start to the point where you don't you don't even need to really say that much about these characters. They can just turn up. There are children who have probably never even seen a Superman film who know who Superman is. He is he's, he's an icon before he is a um, a character. So that's that's where this film, uh, the cinematic universe, is really struggling because it started with the most popular characters, but it hasn't bothered to actually um, define them in a in a way that makes sense. Um, so our first first three films in this cinematic universe have not really done a great job, and then we get Wonder Woman, which. Which is, which is pretty good. It went down very well. Um, Wonder Woman is great because it's a self-contained story. It doesn't. It do, it, it's not trying to um, link up with the with the cinematic universe in any other way than it, it happens to be Diana in it. That's what makes it good. That's what makes it enjoyable. I mean, it, it, it's a pretty standard film, but it but it does it does work in that regard. And then we have an internal logic within that film, within that universe. We have Diana's abilities pretty neatly summed up. We have the limits of her abilities pretty neatly summed up, and it works. It works on those levels. Um, then we get to Justice League and the whole thing just explodes in an absolute mess. This is meant to be their Avengers. This is meant to be their absolute crowning jewel. This is a franchise that will take them through the next 10 years. This is what people should be outrageously excited about and they've got all their characters as well they've got every single one they haven't had to sell the rights to any of their characters so this is this is the a team um this is batman superman wonder woman flash cyborg aquaman this is the team this is awesome and it's cast really well i don't think any any one member of the justice league is badly cast um but think about the characters that are in this film only three of them have have been properly introduced. One of which um, hasn't even had his own film. Batman has not had his own film yet. He has been a character in Batman vs Superman, and he has had a cameo in Suicide Squad, but we still don't really know anything about him. Um, we don't know what this version of, of Batman's um, sort of uh, philosophical argument is. Um, we, we can assume, um, but because they've gone an Elseworlds approach with him and made him kill and made him this really dark and horrible character, maybe there is something different there. We don't know. But by the time we get to Justice League, they've, they've just ignored the, the sort of development of the character in Batman vs Superman and gone, oh no, he's cool now. He's, he's quippy, he's, he's in love with Superman, and he wants to form the Justice League. Um, we don't know why he wasn't working with others in the past. Alfred makes an offhand comment saying, you know, it's nice to see you working well with others. Or it might be um, uh, Gordon, Commissioner Gordon. Um, either way, makes that comment. But why wasn't he? You know, just little things like this are why an entire film dedicated to these characters is critical. Because at no point in the Avengers do you even need to ask um, what Tony, what uh, Steve Rogers, what any of their motivation is for being there. Um, you just know because you've seen the films. So that was a bit of a ramble about DC there, but th this, these are two universes. Um, one that's th there are parallels here. You know, there, there are films that stack up next to each other as nice examples of how to do one right, how to do one wrong. 
Civil War and Dawn of Justice are great examples of this. Two, two films where you've got ensemble casts coming together um, for a conflict between the two main characters. Um, one does it well, one doesn't. Um, so let's look at some other cinematic universes and see if uh, some of them have followed the, the Marvel approach and some of them have followed the DC approach. And, so, and some of these are in progress as well, so we, we don't actually know the result yet. Um, the big one is the uh, Universal Monsters franchise, which uh, current, currently has, I think, one film in it, The Mummy. Um, and <laughs> This is the most bizarre one, I think, because it's because it's it's inexplicable. Did anyone want the Mummy and Frankenstein and Dracula to cross over? And if so, how does that work? Um, these aren't really proper characters. They're they're not the main characters in their franchises. It's the other characters around them. Um, it it has in January twenty nineteen taken on a different. Um, different approach. I think this is the sign of a failing cinematic universe because they're going to focus on standalone features. Again, this is uh, proving my earlier point that the standalones that then come together are better than the films that are trying to shoehorn it in. The Mummy is a perfectly serviceable film. Its weakest points are when it's desperately trying to tell you that there are other creatures out there. You've got... Um, Russell Crowe doing the weirdest Jekyll and Hyde you've ever seen. Um, so it, it comes across as a poor man's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So, you know, th this is a bizarre concept to start with. Um, but th th this one, they've had several goes at it. They tried it with Dracula uh, Untold, and they tried it with The Mummy, and then they, there was a Bride of Frankenstein film coming out a Bride of Frankenstein film before there was even a Frankenstein film. So th this is how rushed these, these universes are getting. People want to get straight to the Avengers. They don't want to do the, the legwork. They don't have the patience. Um, and this is wherein lies the problem. If you are building a universe, you have to build the universe before you can start to play in it. I know that sounds like a really cheesy metaphor, but I, I think it stands true. Marvel did the groundwork and they reaped the rewards. DC rushed to catch up, put out a Justice League film that was crap. Um, Universal Monsters, or the Dark Universe, it's, it, I mean, one, it's kind of inexplicable, but, but two, they rush, they rush it. They, they, the first, ostensibly the first film, The Mummy, in this, in this you know, rebooted cinematic universe, is already filled with references that take away from the film itself. Um, Another cinematic universe that's, that's coming together is the um, is is the giant monsters one. Um, so the Godzilla, the King Kongs. Um, so we had we had a, a reasonably good Godzilla film, um, I think in 2014. That, that was fine. It didn't really speak about a wider um, a, a wider universe, and, and that's pretty good. It just focused on what it was. Um, then you had uh, King Kong Skull Island. Which is again another another pretty self-contained film. It it made itself a period piece, so that meant that it doesn't have to worry about this affecting the modern world or even interacting with the, the modern day characters, which is really cool as an origin story, because they have complete free reign to do it. So it's sort of this Vietnam era um, adventure film with giant monsters in, and the monster designs are pretty cool. Um, that's one of the more interesting things about King Kong is whenever they're on Skull Island and you've got these these monstrous 
um, creatures that are that are really terrifying. Um, and then there's um, then there's the new Godzilla film, which again um, just just sticks to its own its own rules. It might as well be its own film. It's not really a sequel to the second one. No no characters really turn up other than the uh, the shady monolithic organization that loves big monsters. Um, and this, even though even though these films might not appeal to everyone and they might they might not perform particularly particularly well um, critically, um, this is actually what I would say is the right way to build a universe. They've just you've had three films now um, that have just focused on um, on two 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 flagship characters, I guess Godzilla and King Kong. Um, just put them into scenarios, and the next one coming out will will put them together. So we have context. We've seen now Godzilla go up against various different monsters. In King Kong's film, he goes up against a lot of different creatures. Um, them coming together to fight each other is... I mean, I'm not sure if it's going to be good, but at least in terms of the rules of, of building this cinematic universe, it makes sense. Uh, and the world now feels fleshed out. Um, and the way King of the Monsters um, ended was for Godzilla to become like an alpha and all these titans across the world awakening. So it would make sense in the next uh, in the next film for King Kong to start coming to get involved to battle for supremacy. That's a that's an arc. It's not it's not the best story arc in the world, but it is an arc. It makes sense. Um, you know, put that across to to something like the DCEU or even the the, the Sony Spider-Man uh, universe with Andrew Garfield. You know, the, these arcs need to sort of gradually come in not be forced in in the second uh the second film um look at look i mean the amazing spider-man is, is a great example of how to start really really well and then just absolutely biff it um first amazing spider-man film great little standalone film um hints at a, a wider sort of universe at the end with the with the post-credits thing um but broadly is, is just its own film amazing spider-man 2 is just advertising a load of films that never come about. I joke about Paul Giamatti. Really excited to play the Rhino in the fact that he doesn't actually really play the Rhino in that film at all. He featured in all the marketing. He, you know, they built an entire sort of CGI Rhino suit for him to just be in trailers and you know a little bit of it at the end. Just because that's a character that's going to be turn or was going to be turning up in future installments. Um, the Green Goblin was sort of rushed into it, and, and all the, all their origins were just in a basement in in uh, Oscorp, rather than these being actual characters. They're all just you know corporate um, <laughs> corporate experiments. Um, there were Doc Ock arms. There was a Vulture suit. Imagine if these films had actually been successful and been made. How boring would that have been? All these villains with the same origin story. That's the Sinister Six. Just a bunch of guys with some tech on their back. It's it's not. It's not great writing, and it's rushed, really, really rushed. Um, you know, to, to say Sony might have learned their lesson, the, the Venom film, which is part of their, their you know, their Marvel universe. It, I mean, it's weird. It's a weird film, but it is its own film. It's not um, at any point trying to tell you that there are superheroes operating around the world in other places, or that. Um, that Spider-Man is out there somewhere. It's very much its own, its own self-contained um, narrative. 
It doesn't rely on, on the idea that something better is coming in the future. It's just, this is what it is now. Let's go. Um, this, the same was, was true of the X-Men franchise. Now, the X-Men series is really, really interesting to look at from a cinematic universe point of view because it started out in the era of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films in, in 2000 where um, it, it's not a cinematic universe. It's just a, um, a, a trilogy followed by um, some spin-offs. Now, spin-offs are interesting because these days in, in like the MCU, we're not calling them spin-offs. The Black Widow film is not a spin-off. Um, Spider-Man Homecoming is not a spin-off of Civil War. Black Panther is not a spin-off of Civil War. These are just solo films. Um, they're, not, they're, not, you know, they're not part of the ensemble. But in the days of the X-Men series, which you know is a team film, um, the spin-offs were the solo films. So Wolverine Origins getting his getting a solo film. Then there's X-Men First Class, which is still an ensemble film, but really it's a, it's an origin for Magneto and, and Professor X, among a few other characters. And that that's really interesting, because this is a film series transitioning into in, into a cinematic universe. And that's that's very unique. We've not seen that at all, um, other than with the with the X Men series. And it's it was difficult because it had to reconcile modern approaches to superhero movies with a, an older approach, and they they don't mix. They clash. The X Men films originally are pretty cheesy. Um, they they're not too focused on on consistency. Uh, you know, characters can do some things in one shot and some things in another, and it doesn't really matter because the novelty of seeing superheroes on screen was enough at the time. Now we're so oversaturated that if there are issues like that, and because we've got so many examples of good superhero films, that the bad ones just come through even more. So X-Men First Class is a really, really great example of, of brilliant, um, brilliant storytelling in a superhero context. It's a period piece. So again, not going to affect um, any other films at this point. Um, it introduces a, a wide range of characters in, in an ensemble, but does so in a, in a way that everyone gets something to do. You know, they, they choose the powers quite selectively because they are there to, to drive the plot. Um, characters that we've seen be extremely powerful in the original X-Men trilogy are shown to just be sort of learning their abilities. And we, we know where they're going to get to, but the tension of seeing that is, is, is interesting. Um, and then that was followed by Days of Future Past, which was definitely an attempt to reconcile the tonal differences between the original um, approach to superhero filmmaking and the modern approach. Um, so we have the casts of the original and new X-Men films um, in, in a pretty fun time travel romp which intends to course correct and set right the wrongs that have been done in the bad X-Men films and lean heavily into the, the good parts. And then you have films like Daredevil, which were existing in it, and they were talking about making a, a Gambit movie. These are all now the solo films um, coming off of the ensemble film. Rather than the solo films coming into an ensemble film, this is the other way around, which is interesting with something like X-Men, which is almost defined by it being a, a team thing. Um, but Deadpool was successful, Deadpool 2 was successful, um, now the X-Men films are starting to drop. Um, you've got X-Men Apocalypse, which was the, the follow-up to Days of Future Past, which looked to be, you know, this is right, we, we've got the OG 
X-Men now back in this. We've got our Cyclops, our Storm, da-da-da-da-da. This is now where we're going moving forward. These guys are going to carry the franchise. But they took the wrong lessons from the MCU here. Um, raising the stakes beyond what made the X-Men good in the first place, which is the sort of societal issues that they're constantly facing. Now, don't get me wrong, everyone wants spectacle out of these things. You don't want Wolverine fighting an idea. You want him fighting robots, fighting aliens, all this kind of stuff. Um, but the, the, the things that they took wrong was to bring in a character like Apocalypse, who is, a, in, th in theory, a Thanos-level villain, and have him over and done with in one film. This means this to me says they hadn't learned the lessons that I thought they had in Days of Future Past because they could build with this. They could they could build towards this character coming in and you know maybe he does get introduced early on, but we carry over. We see him in other films. He, you know he is this incredibly powerful being, and they have to really step their game up to beat him. Um, then there's X Men Dark Phoenix, which again you know we've set up the Phoenix in in Apocalypse, but. Much like they did in the original, they just sort of blow the the load on the uh, on the character. It, it's not given the the time to to develop. We've only seen Jean Grey as a bit character in X Men Apocalypse, or at least this version of her. Um, and then in our second film, she's turning into the villain. Do we care? Not mm, no, not really. If she was the main character in in Apocalypse, probably, but no, that's not what's happening here. So this is, this is a cinematic universe now that has been born out of an original, old-school method of making films. Imagine if the Sam Raimi films transitioned into a cinematic universe. It would feel very strange because it, it doesn't quite work that way. Spider-Man swinging around New York feels very much his own, his own city. He is the most powerful superhero because he is the only superhero. And he's beating villains that are very personally um, linked to him. Compare that to Spider-Man in Spider-Man Homecoming, who is taking on one of Tony Stark's um, sort of rejects. In fact, that's both the new Spider-Man films. Um, the wider universe has contributed to the, the problems that he is facing. Um, Quentin Beck is able to convince everyone that he is from another dimension because people will believe that. After Thanos uh, decimated everyone, people will believe... Um, all this far-fetched stuff. Um, that wouldn't work in, in the original Raimi one, so they'd have to find a grounded uh, reason for someone like Mysterio to exist, you know, military testing or failed VFX artists, all that kind of stuff, um, which, which is fine at the time. But when you're building out these universes, there needs to be consistency acro across them, and you need to feel the ramifications of what's come before. The X-Men films fail to do this on, a, on almost every level. There is, there is very little reference to the fact that Apocalypse in X-Men Apocalypse murdered millions of people, as did Magneto in Dark Phoenix. In fact, it's, it's, it's barely even, even talked about. Um, but this would be a world-changing event. This would be the sort of... This would be an event on the scale of Infinity War, even though it's not treated as such cinematically... In terms of the impact it would have on the world, absolutely. And, and look how Avengers Endgame handles the effects of Infinity War. The whole world is different. Everyone's attitudes are different. Um, characters are depressed. Uh, characters like Thor uh, become alcoholics. You know, it, it's, it's, it carries over. There is weight to what happens. There are consequences to what happens. In Civil War, 
Rhodey falls from the sky and breaks his back, and now he cannot walk without the assistance of these of these power legs that he's got. Um, it's a small thing because it doesn't really affect the character beyond that, but it is a consequence. It is something that has that has stuck. Um, the the X Men films just never seem to want to commit to their own consequences. You know, um, one of the big things in the original films that was done quite well is. Uh, Professor X can't walk, Beast is always blue, as is Mystique. She's proud to be Mystique. She doesn't wear clothes, she's naked all the time. Um, in the new ones, because they've got sexy young actors in the roles, they want as much of their screen time to be in normal clothes, uh, normal normal, you know, skin, I guess, um, and never really, really explain how they can do that. Because the big debate in X-Men is that some of them look horrific beast looks like a beast mystique looks scary she looks like a sexy purple alien and society doesn't accept them based on that but they do it anyway they can still be heroic or that you know mystique goes villainous blah 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 blah. um if they can just change it like beast can seemingly in in all these films then what's the what's the point what's the, he's got the best of everything that's that's awesome um Anyway, that, that's another tangent. Um, still called off-piste. So, you know, we, we still do go off-piste on these things. Um, so I'm, I'm going to get to a conclusion now because I've, I've rambled a bit. Um, so I've, I've, I've looked at pretty much every cinematic universe that is in either development or, or been developed or failed or, you know, ongoing. Um, and I, I suppose the conclusion that I'll draw is, is, is one that I, you know, I, I made early on, but the, the best examples... Um, of, of cinematic universes and, and films within them are, are standalone films that build out the world, build out a character or multiple characters, and then eventually put them in with other characters. It is not the other way around that makes that work. If we started with the Avengers and worked back from there, it wouldn't make sense. It would feel very strange that they were coming together, that they were butting heads, that there was, you know, there's all this sort of conflict that they're talking about, um, you know, the arrogance of Tony Stark. He's not really that arrogant. He's, he's already undergone a lot of character development by the time he gets to the Avengers. He's just quipping a lot. He's not actually a warmonger. He's, he is heroic. Um, so, if, you know, for people to talk to him, like about him making weapons and all this sort of stuff, it, it wouldn't, wouldn't make sense or it wouldn't carry weight it would make sense it just wouldn't carry weight um you know look D dc are starting to wake up to this they're starting to work out that actually don't rush into a cinematic universe you can bring it right back and just focus on the character aquaman shazam these films are good uh, aquaman is, is a is a spectacle it is it's fun it doesn't just rip off marvel um, it still stays with the sort of aesthetics that the DCEU has, has put forward, which is great. You know, I like it. I like that being the differentiation. Um, but it's charming. It's, it's, it's a fun film. It's got a lot going on in it. And, and it's, the CGI is, is pretty amazing. You know, it's, it's this whole underwater spectacle. Um, Shazam is a, is a much sort of lower key affair, but a really good film. Really fun film. Um, we're dealing with sort of Superman as big, uh, you know, Tom Hanks big. And the film, again, connected to the universe, but not dependent on it to be good. That's, that's, that's the key. That's the point. These films need to be connected to their universes. They need to feel like they're in them, 
but they don't need to be ruined by the fact that they're in them. They don't. Every um, DC film doesn't need uh, Superman to turn up in it, and if he does, it doesn't. It, it needs to serve the plot. Look at Doctor Strange turning up in Thor Ragnarok. It is the perfect amount of cameo because that character exists in the world, and it stands to reason that Thor coming to Earth would get his attention because he's he's there to defend Earth against extraterrestrial threats. Um, so that's exactly what would happen. Uh, that That's context that we've been given because we understand the universe. The universe has rules and makes sense. Um, the DC universe is only now just starting to actually settle. Shazam is probably the first film in the DCEU that looks like it's set in a real city. Everywhere else just looks like a clustered sort of neon hellscape. Um, so that's really the key here. That, that really, I can't express enough how important that, that side of thing is is that the films, first and foremost, should be good on their own. And then you can layer in those connective bits of DNA that hold it to everything else. Hulk turning up in Ragnarok, Tony Stark being in Homecoming, um, Captain America Civil War, certain characters turning up in Black Panther. This is all good stuff because it makes sense that these characters would be there. It's not just a, oh, hey, look, here's, uh, here's Batman and Superman fighting because... Uh, why? Well, why not? You know, uh, they they might as well. They don't know each other. They've got no pre-existing relationship, but they might as well be fighting each other. Sure, why not? That's fine. If you enjoyed this and would like to hear more of them, I'm more than happy to do it. Um, I, I I did initially intend on writing a script for it, but actually, as I started going, I did kind of uh, ramble on. I quite like the informal nature of it, but um, I mean, obviously. If not, then we'll just we'll just bin it. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear what other people have to say about cinematic universes, why they think uh, some work and others don't, um, and and what you, whether you agree with me or not, whether you think I'm I'm talking complete nonsense, whether you know it's it's utter bullshit. The DCU is actually a masterpiece. Maybe I'm just I'm the problem. I'm the one who doesn't understand it. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can uh, get us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash offpiste podcast um you can get us on twitter at offpiste and you can email us at offpeacepodcast at gmail.com so i want to thank you all for listening to this episode normal service will resume next week uh and uh yeah thanks a lot cheers bye